from deep inside your audio device of choice. This is Le Show, and um, I've been reading a couple of books on the subject of this uh, this thing that uh, permeates our lives and and has for the last couple of decades called the Internet. And uh, I'm going to have conversations with the authors of each book uh, on this program starting today with Yasha Levine, who's the author of... Uh, book called Surveillance Valley, um, which kind of gives a, a sense of um, what the thrust of the book is. Uh, Levine was born in the Soviet Union and uh, came here with his parents at the age of nine, uh, grew up in San Francisco. Uh, he's written for Wired, The Nation, Slate, Time, The New York Observer, and other publications. Uh, he's also written books about the Koch brothers and Malcolm Gladwell, <laughs> That's some scope. Uh, Yasha Levine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I didn't realize you were going to have other authors on here. I'm going to have one other, but not on this. I wouldn't have showed up if I, if I had known. No, I'm just kidding. Not on this program, on another program oh, okay. at, at another time. This is not going to be a debate. Okay. Yeah, right. Surveillance Valley. Um, the, the premise of it, and I'm going to boil it down and then we're going to drill into it, is that uh, the Internet that we have, I'm going to use that word again, permeating our lives these days. Uh, There are various theories as to how it is developed into um, this data-sucking surveillance monster that a lot of people decry. And uh, there are those who say that uh, this is a product of a certain economic imperative. there are those who have other explanations. Yours seems to rest on the premise that baked into the DNA of the Internet is its roots in the United States military. Am I stating that correctly? Oh, uh, yeah. So let's... Uh, that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how... Uh, th- this starts with an agency that I think some of us have heard of but uh, has succeeded in maintaining its air of mystery through the years, ARPA or DARPA. Tell us a little bit about how uh, the Internet grew out of ARPA or ARPANET. Um, Sure, yeah. So ARPA um, was created uh, in response to the launch of the Sputnik um, in the 1950s as as a way to close uh, the sort of technology gap between, between America and the Soviet Union because Sputnik was a nice little show for the for the entire world. You know, it was the first man-made satellite shot into space. Uh, but what really put the fear of God into American military uh, brass uh, was the rocket on which it was launched. So the Soviet Union um, demonstrated that it had the capability to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile that could be topped with a nuclear warhead, um, and that warhead could come down pretty much at any place in America or, or around the world. Uh, and America was essentially open to attack, uh, wide open, and, and uh, uh, President Eisenhower created ARPA as, a, as, a, as almost like a PR stunt to show that we're doing something about this. Um, and ARPA was supposed to be a kind of a NASA um, agency, um, a military NASA, so it was going to develop missile technology right, to compete with the Soviet Union. But uh, very quickly, uh, it was sort of reorganized, and a lot of its missile uh, programs were transferred to a new civilian agency called NASA. And it was sort of remained life support 
uh, not clear uh, what it was doing, what it was for, until John Kennedy became president and sort of reinvigorated the agency as an agency that would develop new technologies and new types of weapons that would allow America to fight a new kind of war that it was confronting around the world, um, particularly in Vietnam, a counterinsurgency war. Uh, so it's not like a traditional war where you have armies facing off against each other with tanks and you know people in uniform, but it was a war that America was starting to wage that was essentially uh, against a, an enemy that was embedded within a civilian population, mm -hmm. and that was almost indistinguishable from a civilian population. And so ARPA became the center of counterinsurgency um, R&D. So you say in in the in the book that uh, ARPA's mission be, uh, became one of building computer systems that could collect and share intelligence, uh, study and analyze people and political movements, so as to predict and prevent social upheaval. How are they going to go about this? What were the steps that they were taking to be able to prevent the next Viet Cong? <laughs> At that point, America had already developed um, an early warning radar system. Mm -hmm. This was the first sort of national spy spy network, you could call it that, because there were these uh, installations of radars all around the country. Surveillance. Let's be nice. Surveillance. Yeah, surveillance. Yeah. It's surveilling the air for hostile aircraft. Mm -hmm. And if there's a hostile aircraft that's detected, this computer system would recognize it and would allow the Air Force to scramble jets, missiles, to inter to, and to intercept this threat, right? Um, and so that one had already been established in some of the early uh, first interactive computers com uh, with you know, screens and essentially these early kind of mice that you could move around and, mm -hmm. and, and click on things on the screen came out of this early warning radar system called SAGE that ran on these giant IBM computers that were almost like an acre each. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, this notion that you could develop computer technology, network it, and make it national, and use it to watch airspace but also predict the future position of an aircraft. So mm -hmm. that you can see the trajectory, you can see the speed, so you could intercept them in the future, right? You can send a missile in that, at that point in, in the sky and then blow them out of the air. Now, the idea, you know, that a couple of people that were in these rarefied uh, military sort of futurist circles uh, were thinking about why not use that model for a battlefield? Uh, why not use that model for a human society? Why not use that radar system model for, you know, everything in the world. Why limit it to airspace? And so you could do the same thing with, let's say, a political movement. You could feed information about a society, uh, what's happening in, in, in that society. Are there conflicts? Are, is there an economic crisis? Are there ideas that are being propagated by certain people that are, you know, taking on a viral qu quality? If you could feed that into a computer system and create models that could, you know, crunch those numbers and come up with predictive sort of results you could create an early warning system for social revolutions, for insurgencies. You could also um, use it to potentially isolate the, the sort of the problem um, aspects of, uh, in a society, like who are the radicals. If you can't, if you just see a mass of people walking down t in Times Square, one person doesn't differ from, the, from another, you know, externally. Mm -hmm. But if you know about their backgrounds, if you know about who they hang out with, what they read, uh, what are their social circles, right? Then you could begin to understand who they are. And sort of that was the, the, the idea, uh, one of the ideas, one of the strands that was running through um, the military at the time uh, in the 1960s during the Vietnam War that uh, fed into this um, ARPA program that would later uh, launch the ARPANET 
which was the early version of the Internet. In your book, uh, you cite a, a moment in time, and I should have remembered this because I was watching TV then, uh, but a reporter on NBC Nightly News revealed that ARPANET was being used to help the CIA, the NSA, and the Army spy on anti-war and civil rights activists. It's the CONUS Intel Project is yes. what you're referring to, yes. right? So tell us about the CONUS Intel Project. In 1975, there was this report by a journalist, NBC journalist uh, named Ford Rowan. He came out with this you know, report saying that there's this secret um, military network that's linking the White House, the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, and it's being used to uh, spy on Americans. It's being used to move around data on American subversives and radicals, and it's being used to spy on millions of Americans. And, and it, it was interesting because a big part of that segment, he spent talking about the technical structure of this network, how it worked, and how there's these different routers that were connected, and what made it very um, different from other technologies was that it could connect any kind of computer, that it could connect any computer sitting in any, um, in, in any government agency. From any manufacturer? From any manufacturer, like today, mm -hmm. um, like the Internet we have today. So mm -hmm. you can connect. It's, the, the Internet today doesn't really care what kind of phone or what kind of computer you connect mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. it's, it, there's a standardized language. And that was a very unique thing at the time because if you probably remember in the 70s, the big thing was about, like, the centralized government database. Mm -hmm. Everybody was worried about the big one computer that would, like, have everything on you, you know, starting with your Social Security number to all your phone records to your bank information um, to your, you know, military service record to your, to your school records, all these things. People were freaking out that uh, this could be possible, and there were some uh, government uh, proposals to, to create such, such databases, right, these centralized massive databases on Americans, and they were shot down in Congress, time and time again. But what the ARPANET showed at the time was that you didn't need a giant centralized computer and a giant centralized database if you could connect a bunch of little databases together and, and share that information, right? So mm -hmm. you didn't need to have a centralized uh, database and Americans having all their information if you could just you know, share information on these people that, that the FBI has, that the NSA has, that the CIA has, right, and connect that with other government agencies. So the big breakthrough and what really freaked people out on why this, the ARPANET, you know, the Internet was on NBC News mm -hmm. you know, for three days in a row mm. uh, because this was a new development and it, and it, was, and it kind of went around the fears that people had, and, and it, it was unexpected, mm -hmm. right, that you didn't need a centralized database. You could have a bunch of different databases. And what the report showed was that the U.S. government had taken records that it, had, that it was supposed to have destroyed from the late 1960s uh, on American protesters and civil rights uh, activists that it had collected illegally in the 1960s. It was supposed to have destroyed those records. Those were from the COINTELPRO uh, program of the FBI, among other things? In this particular case, it was, a, it was an illegal U.S. Army ah, uh, program. Ah. I mean, look, every agency had its own spy operation <laughs> yeah, going yeah. on, and every agency was collecting data. But the U.S. Army had its own program, and mm -hmm. it wasn't supposed to be spying on people on American soil, mm -hmm. right? That's not what the U.S. Army is meant to do. And, but it had created this sprawling surveillance program that had infiltrated pretty much any protest uh, movement, every, any activist organization, you know, that had more than two or three people had a, essentially the fourth person there was a, was a U.S. Army mm -hmm. spy. That was because it was believed that America was being infiltrated by Soviet agents who were um, sort of feeding divisions in America, uh, that they were feeding sort of the civil rights movement, that they were using that 
uh, and funding it, right, to to basically crack America like an egg. And so th- these legitimate protests and legitimate uh, civil rights groups were seen as actually sort of uh, you know foreign tools to mm-hmm. to break up America. And so that's why the army got involved is because they thought this was actually kind of a low level invasion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was prepping America for a larger war, uh, destabilizing it. And so the U.S. Army collected uh, millions uh, of records on Americans, you know, U.S. senators, um, church leaders, civil rights activists, um, you know, left-wing protesters, uh, student, student activists, pretty much anybody. There was a Poor People's March on Washington, D.C., mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they had infiltrated it, and they were actually, the instructions that the agents got from their superiors was you got to make sure that there are these mules that are sort of being, that are wheeling these wagons from the south, you know, these poverty wagons mm. from the south. You got to check the mules for signs of abuse because, because then we can use that. If they're abusing animals, you know, we can use that against them <laughs> and we can use that to tarnish them. Mm. So, you had, you know, you had U.S. Army, you know, recruits, basically young guys, uh, you know, growing out their hair long and, 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 and joining, these, joining these protests. And so when um, that, that was exposed, that program, the U.S. Army said that, oh, yeah, we're sorry about this. Yeah, we'll destroy the records. Yeah, it's not, it's not really that legal. You're right. We'll destroy the records. But instead of destroying the records, they used the ARPANET to digitize them and to share them among all the different intelligence agencies. That's why it was so scandalous. Hmm. You, know? you mentioned another computerized surveillance program that was coming out of ARPA called Project Igloo White uh, in, in Thailand. Yeah. During the Vietnam War, uh, ARPA was involved with the Air Force to essentially bug the battlefield, as they called it. Um, the problem that the American military faced in Vietnam was the jungle cover, right? The, the, the jungle cover that was screwing everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't see what you're bombing because of the, the dense jungles. You couldn't see troop movements uh, because of, of, of the dense coverage. Of course, Agent, Agent uh, Orange right, was used to... Uh, to destroy and to denude completely, you know, huge swaths of jungle. Mm-hmm. Another program that was initiated was to develop a computerized surveillance system that would rely on these uh, wireless sensors that would be dropped from from air from airplanes, and that would embed in the ground, and that would um, transmit data. Some would transmit sound, other would tra- transmit uh, vibrations in the ground. Let's say if there's a truck passing mm-hmm. nearby. Mm-hmm. Others would actually even try to um, detect if there's urine, human urine, and if there's a large troop movement, you know, through the jungle, people are peeing, obviously. Mm. And so the idea was that you'd, you'd, you'd sense that urine and, and you'd beam that information back. And so the idea was you bug the battlefield, right? You have these embedded sensors everywhere. And when the North Vietnamese uh, soldiers are moving through, there's a convoy that was moving under the cover of, of the jungle. Uh, these sensors would pick up that motion. And would transmit that back to a, you know, through these various relay uh, stations to a command center where there would be an IBM computer and a couple of guys sitting there uh, without their shirts on because it was hot. <laughs> and they would say, oh, you know, Sector G is, is lighting up. You know, we got to call in an airstrike there. And so based on the data that they'd be receiving from these sensors, the U.S. Air Force would be called in and they just, they just you know, completely just annihilate that, that, that section of the jungle mm-hmm. and then go home and, and, and call the mission a success without really knowing if they actually hit anything down there. Mm-hmm. Just these network sensors telling them what to, what to strike and when. Yes, exactly. And there's evidence uh, that uh, the Vietnamese understood what was happening and figured out ways to trick the system. So, you know, they trigger this, these sensors on purpose and basically have a false alarm 
uh, and, and have you know, the U.S. concentrate all their firepower on, on, on a sector where no, nothing was happening. Meanwhile, they're moving in a different part of the jungle completely. And so they're actually tricking you know, American forces of, into thinking that they're succeeding and winning, right? that they're hitting these targets and annihilating them. But in reality, they're actually just playing with this computer model, and it's all virtual. And so they're, you know, everything, the mission is based on a, on a virtualized picture of the battlefield, and you're basing whether or not you've succeeded in your mission on the, on the information that you're receiving from your sensors that don't necessarily correspond to reality. And the North Vietnamese were spoofing it in our modern yeah. parlance. Yeah. Um, there's a, a person you introduce, a Mr. or Dr. Licklighter, who seems to be a, a really crucial person. Tell us about him a little bit. Yeah, Licklider is an interesting character. Uh, he, he's an engineer and a, and, a, and a psychologist, and he had uh, sort of cut his teeth um, working for, for the military, building America's uh, early warning radar system, the first um, early war warning radar system for hostile aircraft. Um, now it's known as NORAD. Mm -hmm. um, and he helped design parts of that system, specifically the, the parts of the system that involved human-computer interaction. So um, things like creating a, a computer screen that a, a human being could interact with. I mean, these things were had to be invented from scratch because they didn't exist back then. Um, you know, a kind of a mouse-like um, gadget that you could click on menus and things like that. So a graphical user interface he helped to design for this big computerized early warning radar system. From that experience, he was, he, he was kind of radicalized and became this early um, you know, tech evangelist he, because he, he saw that you could create these systems, right, and you could build computers in a way that sort of integrated humans into them, right? So r rather than making them these kind of like, you know, big giant calculators that you had to tap away on, actually create computers and computer systems almost to envelop people, right, so that you could easily interact with them. And so he, off of the system, he, he kind of almost predicted what the Internet would look like today. He saw that, you know, you'd have these big data centers that would be connected by high-speed telephone lines, and uh, to each other, and then they will also be connected to people in their homes or in their offices or in uh, government offices or, or, or in w warships or whatever, right, by radio, by telephone link, by modem, and it would be this kind of global network, and it would pool resources. It would have programs that you could run. You could read news. You could, um, you know, ingest data. You can crunch numbers. You could do all sorts of things on it. And he envisioned this, and he kind of wrote it out in this paper that became very influential. Based on that, based on his vision of this global, or at least national at the time, computer network that was easy to use uh, and ubiquitous, he got a job at ARPA designing um, and running the program that would um, spawn the ARPANET, the first military version of the Internet. You know, what you describe sounds so much like what we live with today. It wasn't seen as something nefarious, right? It was seen as something useful. Mm -hmm. um, the idea was that you could expand human potential. And so it would be useful for, for people in, in their creativity, right? People, artists would be more creative. Um, it also allowed the government to work more efficiently. It would allow businesses to work more efficiently. So people at the time saw it as a, um, you know, as, as a useful thing. It wasn't nefarious. Even though there was a precedent you cite in your book of Nazi Germany's use of IBM technology for the study and management of large groups of people, as you describe it. So there, there had already been uh, an example uh, served up by history of the way this could go wrong. 
you know, uh, I, I think one thing that's really been bad about the dot-com boom and this kind of re-imagining um, of technology as something that is outside of the world, right? Uh, we think of the at least we used to think of the internet as something that was almost disconnected from physical reality across borders. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in the physical space. It was almost abstracted, like mm -hmm. ideas. It was this realm of ideas, you know? We, so we tend to disconnect uh, technology from the underlying sort of political and socioeconomic re reality on which it exists. And, and, and so these things are a function of society. They were created by society. They were created by government and by private corporations. And they... You know, the Internet kind of embodied these values and computer technology embodies these values uh, in the way that it's designed. And so, of course, you know, when you have governments that are involved in pretty brutal military campaigns, when they're involved in suppressing their own populations and, 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 um, and jailing their populations, these computers are going to be used to do that. They're going to be used as instruments to, to organize those things. So uh, but at the same time, these computers are going to allow us to, you know, talk remotely from each other. Right. Uh, and and um, and connect people around the world in kind of in pleasant ways, uh, but but they are a function of society, and so the fact that you have Nazi Germany using IBM tabulators during the war to manage its large slave labor complex that was uh, used to sort of keep armaments coming mm. uh, to the front lines, you know, it's a it's a function of of these computers. They can be used in different ways by, by in different contexts, right? And so they they have this kind of dual or multi use, but. Computers were always, you know, tied to surveillance. And this is another, I think, important thing that we have to remember when we talk about computers. I mean, computers are fundamentally machines that take information and organize it and crunch it somehow to make it more useful. They're information machines, right? And where do you get the information? The information usually comes from the outside world. Mm -hmm. So if you're dealing with the early, you know, punch card technology, you know, you're, you're doing railroad timetables, uh, you're counting people for the census, right? You're doing these things. You're taking information from the outside world and you're ingesting it into a computer. You're doing something with that information. You're getting a result way, right? But ultimately, a computer relies on gathering data from the outside world. And, you know, I like to think of it as surveillance, you know, written writ large, you know, and kind of on a high level of that word. Not just spying on people, but spying on the world or, or watching the world, collecting mm -hmm. data. And so um, it's not surprising that you know, computers are intertwined with surveillance um, because that's what computers are meant to do. They're meant to process surveillance data. You, you uh, at one point mentioned uh, a, a guy whose name was uh, almost ubiquitous in the early days of, of publicity about the Internet in the early 1990s, uh, Vince Cerf, who is now... Uh, uh, I guess still has this maybe the most amazing job title in the world, given everything we know about everything these days. He's the chief evangelist of Google. Is he still? <laughs> yeah, I think it's called, is he chief internet evangelist? Or yeah. He's the chief evangelist, chief something evangelist at yeah. Google. Yeah, that's his job title. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because that title really is masks his real function, which is that he's kind of a covert lobbyist, essentially, is what he is for Google, mm. um, because he's just this high-level guy who, you know, helped create um, some, of the, some of the protocols that underlie the Internet today. And he is so connected across industry, uh, government, and military uh, layers of society that he can sort of make things happen. He sort of has a very good reputation. But, yeah, Vince Cerf, you know, worked for ARPA and was instrumental in creating ARPANET 2.0 that later became the Internet. 
TCP/IP, which are the the protocols that make computers talk to each other, right? Exactly, exactly. It's the TCP/IP uh, protocol. It governs the way that data is structured. It's this the language that that allows all these different computers to talk to each other um, separately. You know, they can be many, many manufacturer, but as long as they adhere to this language, they can all talk one language. You quote him as saying that his efforts with a colleague to devise that protocol that would allow networks, not just computers to talk to each other, but different networks to uh, interconnect, was, in your words, entirely rooted in the needs of the military. Oh, yeah, he was a military contractor. I mean, he, uh, he worked for ARPA. I mean, he was not even... He was a contractor at some point, and then he was a full-time employee of the Pentagon. Mm. And so, you know, when you're working for the Pentagon, chances are you're doing something that the military wants you to do. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I could be proven wrong by somebody, but but that's basically what you're doing. And he was trying to um, make the Internet useful to the military. So he was going around with his team members saying, look, what can we build for you that uses the Internet that uh, makes your life easier and better? And, you know, so he, so he would go around, uh, you know, helping, for instance, the Air Force uh, come up with these custom um, programs that would run on the Internet that would allow them to load airplanes much more efficiently uh, and allow different bases to communicate about what they need and how to, and how to better stack the, the payload and things like that. One of the early um, demonstrations of uh, this TCPIP um, Internet protocol that he developed was actually – a NATO NATO tank battle, essentially, except that they had a van outfitted with the TCPIP compliant technology, going down the 101 freeway, I think, near Stanford, mm. um, basically beaming up information to a satellite um, as if it was a tank, right, on, on a on a battlefield. Mm. That that information was beamed then across um, sort of a landline to another location. And then that was beamed back by radio, and then a landline, and again a satellite link back to the back to the van. So it was a demonstration of that: hey, you could have a a mobile unit connected to the to the internet by satellite, and it could communicate with the Pentagon uh, thousands of miles away. And that was a very useful, obviously, technology, right? And this was in, I believe, this is 1971 or 1972 that this was being done. And we've seen the most recent uh, public demonstration of of that kind of technology when WikiLeaks released the collateral murder video. Exactly. I just, I just make that connection, but, you know, it seems obvious. So we've, we've talked about how the Internet is born in this military space, and then the question would be, how does it then jump the gap to civilian life? And you point to uh, an individual who at one point was a counterculture hero, Stuart Brand. Most people knew him from uh, his creation of the Whole Earth Catalog. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, he was a big um, cultural figure um, in, the, in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, probably, I'd say, one of the more interesting um, uh, characters in the history of the Internet because he's sort of unexpected. You know, what does Stuart Brand have to do with the Internet? You know, the guy who kind of created a, a sales magazine, right, a, like an L.L. Bean <laughs> magazine for hippies, mm-hmm. right, in communes. He was part of the Merry Pranksters. He helped put on, I think, the, the first um, Grateful Dead show in San Francisco. Mm. He was very tight with the commune movement and mm-hmm. um, launched um, the Whole Earth Catalog as a magazine for the commune movement, right, as a way of, you know, how do you, how do you use small-scale technologies to create a better world? That's what communes were trying to do. They were trying mm-hmm. to move out of the cities and create a new world. They were not engaging with the old world, mm-hmm. right? They wanted to create new utopian societies. And so mm-hmm. 
the magazine that he created was servicing them, right? Here are the tools that you can use. Here are some tips that you can use to, you know, make your organic garden and all these things. Mm -hmm. And he, at the same time that he was embedded in the commune movement, he was also embedded in the world of, of ARPA and the ARPANET. So he was in Stanford. And he was very close to people at the Stanford Research Institute, a major ARPA contractor uh, that was involved in um, the, building the ARPANET. And so he was in, in the straddling both of these two worlds. And what he showed was that the worlds of, of ARPA and military contracting, the Vietnam War, and, and the commune movement were actually not far apart at all, but actually overlapping on multiple fronts to the point where you had Douglas Engelbart, who is famous for inventing the mouse, mm -hmm. but who was, you know, invented the mouse as a contractor for ARPA, uh, a part of the ARPANET program. Uh, he was, you know, a big fan of the commune movement. He dropped acid. He gave acid to some of his engineers to see <laughs> if they could uh, be more productive. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was very friendly with Stuart Brand, and Stuart Brand even helped him run one of the first demos of, of using the ARPANET, the Internet, to do live video conferencing and um, collaborative document editing. So stuff that you would be able to do on, like, Google Hangouts or Google Docs. Mm -hmm. Already uh, in the early 1970s, that was already possible in a very, very crude way, obviously. Uh, this is not something that you could, could have at home. Uh, but it was already demonstrated to be possible. And Stuart Brand, while sort of hanging out with the commune, was also helping this ARPANET contractor put on the demo of this. That was, that was kind of really um, a turning point uh, for a lot of people because they, they suddenly saw that, wait, this ARPANET isn't just some random network. It, it could actually do things. You could actually build these applications on top of it that were very interesting. And so he straddled both of these worlds. And when co the com personal computer revolution started hitting in the 1980s and these computers suddenly began to be cheap enough for people to buy, um, he sort of switched away from the commune movement, which is already at that point dead pretty mm -hmm. much, towards tech evangelism and, and, and boosting and promoting the idea that technology, personal computer technology and computer networks were the new frontier of social and political liberation. Mm -hmm. These were the new digital communes. And so he staged the first hacker conference in Marin, in Marin County uh, that was covered by PBS and that was, you know, introduced people to these weird, you know, computer engineers with, with, uh, with bearded kind of troll type, type characters that were, you know, creating these weird, weird programs and games and things like that. So he helped market them, these nerds and these hackers, as the new commune movement, right? These were the new hippie leaders, uh, and they were going to take this technology and create a new world with it, a better world, a more equal world. And so, you know, he was almost, you could say that Wired magazine kind of takes Stuart Brand's a Whole Earth catalog with his later tech evangelism and kind of cr puts it into this shiny package mm -hmm. and creates a magazine for the dot-com boom. Wired magazine. So he was an inspiration for it. You quote him in a, a, a Rolling Stone article that he wrote on the subject as saying that uh, ARPA was uh, not some, quote, big bureaucratic bummer connected to America's war machine, those are your words, but instead was part of, and these are his words, an astonishingly enlightened research program that just happened to be at the Pentagon. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, yeah. This was in the pages of Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. so at, at the same time that it was publishing. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, right, the Rolling Stone, it was also publishing Stuart Brand uh, and this profile of ARPA, uh, military contractors, working for a counterinsurgency project, working for a project that was 
building a new command and control system, communication system for the military as totally enlightened. We're just making this military uh, communication system, but we just happened to be at at the Pentagon. He really helped to almost pivot and remarket military technology and the people who make this military technology into radicals and into um, these people who are going to be creating a new world. And so you can see his, his pivot that he, di- he, that he did in the 1990s and the 2000s uh, with you know, how we saw people like Mark Zuckerberg, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, and people like Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs was a huge fan of the whole Earth catalog, and he mm-hmm. was a huge fan of Stuart Brand. Jeff Bezos is a giant fan of, of, of Stuart Brand as well. I mean, they're even partnering on a on a project together mm. to, to build this forever clock in some oh, yes. mountain yes. in the desert yes. somewhere. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And so uh, they're all actually, you know, he was an inspiration to a, a, a whole several generations of um, Silicon Valley uh, billionaires or who, people who would become billionaires. Mm-hmm. Now there is an individual you mentioned in the book who's uh, crucial in moving the internet from government to private hands. Uh, tell us a little bit about Stephen Wolf. Well, Stephen Wolf is just a kind of a faceless um, bureaucrat. <laughs> but he had a nose uh, and, and eyes, right? Yeah, he had eyes, uh, but faceless at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Well, look, S- Stephen Wolf is an interesting character because he is was a bureaucrat who helped privatize the internet. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the internet that we use now was actually privatized. So it was funded first by the uh, by the federal government. And then uh, very, very methodically um, was designed to be privatized. He was the guy who developed the program of how that would work. And so no one really knows his name. He's in, you know, in, in obscure you know, sort of uh, academic um, histories of, of the Internet, but no one knows his name. He was surprised that a reporter even bothered looking him up when I, when I got in touch with him while writing the book. Um, and he was at the National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation kind of took over the mantle from the ARPANET when the ARPANET was absorbed into the military and became a functional uh, military network. The National Science Foundation kind of took over for creating and maintaining a academic Internet that, that could connect um, U- American universities, NSFNet. So he was one of the main uh, people who was put in charge of sort of designing how this, how this network would look, how this academic, federally funded network would look. And at the time he designed it, uh, with the express goal of privatizing it when the network would become commercially viable. And the way that they did that was that they um, contracted it out to private contractors. To, uh, so the, the main um, national um, network, uh, the backbone of the national network, was run by IBM and uh, MCI, um, the old um, telecom company. Mm-hmm. Then there were these smaller regional networks like local ISPs mm-hmm. that were also... Uh, sort of created and funded to service local communities, universities, but also com- communities ge- geographically around them. And so the, the U.S. government funded it, funded it, funded it, this network. And when these uh, companies could attract enough um, private customers to, to fund their business, they were allowed to essentially keep all the infrastructure assets they had developed with, with government f- funding and to become fully commercial companies. And these uh, ISPs... These regional networks and the backbone provider would later become absorbed uh, into Time Warner, uh, Verizon, things like that. So the U.S. government funded these, this network, this national network, of these made up of these different regional networks, and those ne- regional networks were privatized and bought up by um, telecommunications companies and 
has led directly to the uh, to the to the fund monopolies that we use today. When you say bought up, they didn't they didn't actually pay the government for these assets, right? They, they the the buying up was the small companies were bought up by the big companies, but none of that money flowed back to the feds, or did it? There was no money going the other way back to the government, and the government didn't retain any stake in these companies that it helped create with government funding. It was just the way that it worked, I mean, simply is that you had private companies that existed and survived only because of federal funding. And these companies then built out the, the infrastructure, built out the network, connected cl- customers, and then that infrastructure was privately owned, but it was funded completely by the government. And so when they were, you know, they were sort of technically privatized, but they had been privatized from the very beginning because that's the way that the network was designed. It was designed to be a private network sustained through government funding, right? And so there was nothing to to pay the government back for, not in the way that it was designed. Mm. And this was, you know, done on purpose. This was, as, as um, Stephen Wolf told me, you know, this was like the you know, Reagan years. Uh, this is the late 80s and um, mid to late 80s and... The idea that you would create a totally new national infrastructure, that the government would actually own it and control it and run it, I mean, you might as well say that you're a communist, you know, uh, <laughs> if you're proposing something like that. So mm-hmm. it wasn't even something that came into into the heads of, the, of bureaucrats at the National Science Foundation uh, because the idea was you, you, you want to use government money to stimulate private enterprise. Of course, this, this was a key piece of infrastructure built by the government and built to be privatized. And it was done with no public input. Like No one really knew what was going on at the time. And when the dot-com boom really started taking off, um, of course, this infrastructure became really, really valuable. But, you know, it would all flow to, of course, to, to the private sector, and, uh, and the government kind of never got anything for it. You quote uh, a manager of a, an NSF net provider uh, at the time who's told the New York Times about this quote, it's like taking a federal park and giving it to Kmart. Exactly. I mean, there was a brief scandal. But, you know, what's funny about that quote is that there was a spat between um, different Internet service providers that had been created by the government. And when this sort of privatization was taking place and when they were being allowed to sort of seek private customers and then privatize chunks of their operation, it wasn't that this early ISP uh, was against privatizing this public park or this national park. They were upset that um, the biggest and juiciest pieces of this national park were being privatized to a sort of a, a favored company, right? That one company was getting the best stuff and that mm. they were getting the scraps. Mm. And so there's actually a fight for the way that, that, privati- that the privatized in- infrastructure was divvied up. And so even the, even the scandal surrounding the privatization of the National Science Foundation network, the NSFNet, revolve not around whether or not we should have a public internet, whether it should be government-funded, or, or, or should it be even privatized? Is that, is that a good thing to, to do? The, the, the scandal and the fight around it was which company gets to take what part, mm-hmm. and why is the government privileging some companies over others? But as you point out, the decision to do this uh, never came to a vote in Congress. There was no public uh, debate about what should happen to the government at that time, the federal, federally founded Internet. It just, it just happened. In hindsight, it, it, it seems like a scandal. But because the public didn't really interact with the Internet at, at the time, right? Mm-hmm. only a small, very small world was even aware of what this is and what the potential of this technology was. I mean, 
the ISPs and, and the telecommunications companies that had taken part in the, in the National Science Foundation Network in, 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 this, in this project, they knew that this was going to blow up and that this was the investment of a lifetime. Mm. You know? And so it was a small world of new, you know, few insiders, essentially. But the larger public or even you know, the business community, um, academic community, and shockingly, you know, even the politicians didn't really know what this was or why it was valuable or, or, or why it was important, you know? So it was, it was just done kind of right under, under people's noses. Is today's Internet at all involved with ARPA or DARPA, or is it uh, fully just commercial and interested in leveraging your data for commercial advantage? Of course it's integrated with ARPA and, and DARPA. I mean, now it's called DARPA. Mm-hmm. There's a D tacked onto it for defense. Um, Yes, it's very much. DARPA is a large agency, um, and it does all sorts of um, advanced weapons uh, research and development. I mean, and technology, not just you know weapons as in like killing people and shooting people, but uh, information technology, uh, medical technology, uh, robotics. Um, for instance, you know, a good example of it is. Um, uh, like uh, if you remember those scary Google robots, the the, the <laughs> cheetah that Google had that would run down the street, mm-hmm. you know that was a, a company that was funded in part by DARP by DARPA money. So Google bought that company. And the company was funded by DARPA and essentially seeded with DARPA money. Facebook at some point was working with DARPA to develop a use for its Oculus three, you know, mm-hmm. uh, virtual reality um, goggles to develop. This virtual reality environment in which cybersecurity experts and you know information warfare specialists could sort of uh, visualize the internet in 3D and kind of fly through it and things like that. Um, Facebook hired a, a, a former director of, of DARPA to head its advanced projects division. So there's a big revolving door uh, between personnel, mm-hmm. between DARPA and Silicon Valley, and and a lot of joint projects or projects that sort of flow out of DARPA and flow into Silicon Valley in all sorts of different ways. I'd say that the Internet is more integrated now with you know, the military-industrial complex or, or with the national security state on a larger level than it was ever before. Wow. Uh, look, Edward Snowden's documents give a sense of that, right? I mean, it shows that the NSA is running this g- global surveillance uh, program and that every major um, tech company in America was a part of it part of this uh, secret program that allowed the NSA to tap their uh, data warehouses and uh, allowed um, an analyst at the NSA to basically get Google, get like text message alerts for when a t- their target, you know, logged onto their Gmail account or when they started moving in this, you know, uh, from, a, from a certain location and things like that. So it's a very advanced program. Um, that program um, is, I think, one of the largest sources or main sources for intelligence that's used in presidential intelligence briefs. Mm. So the, the U.S. government relies on data that's sort of filtered and collected um, by these private companies, right, for its own intelligence gathering operations. So that's what the feds are getting for their investment is data. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and if you look at every um, – if you look at any – uh, arm of the Pentagon, whether it's the Army, whether it's the uh, Air Force, whether it's the Navy, you'll find uh, at least several uh, various projects that are aimed at predicting and stopping uh, future conflict. <laughs> so using um, the Internet as sort of input points, right, for this uh, radar system, for an early warning radar system for human societies. And so um, 
you know, back in the 70s when the Internet was first being developed, it, it was a system that could be used to um, transfer data and crunch data, right, and process it and visualize it. But the actual intelligence had to be collected external to the system, right? So someone actually had to go out into the real world and spy on people, write down things, right, and then plug it into the system. Mm-hmm. Today, the Internet, you know, is ubiquitous. Everything that we do sort of is, is – or a lot of the things that we do is filtered through it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our phones are on us all the time, so our location is tracked in real time as we go about our business. You know, all our emails, our communication with other people, we, what we watch, what we read – Right, who we date, even I mean, you know, all everything pretty much is gets funneled through the system, and so the internet has become much more powerful uh, as it's gotten much commercial, right? Because suddenly it is actually that vision of 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 the internet that that, that certain rarefied people had in in the Pentagon in the, in the '60s is coming true. The radars are all around us, mm-hmm. right? These ra- radars are picking things up. Um, from our interactions, you know, to our location, to where we are, uh, and uh, and sort of feeding into the system, and the military agencies um, are tapping into that, um, and of course Google and Facebook make money off of that, but the intelligence agencies that sit above them use that information if they need it. It was a few days ago the New York Times did a story about showing how more and more police departments are relying on data that they get from Google. Mm-hmm to solve cold murder cases and things like that because they just do this dragnet where they say, okay, this person was killed in this you know, isolated area. No, one's see, no one saw anything. There are no cameras. There are no witnesses. Ah, but we, what we do have is we can see if there was anyone you know, with a phone mm-hmm. uh, in this general area at that general time. Mm-hmm. And so you suddenly, oh, wow, there's uh, 15, 20 people that we can uh, talk to and, and, and potential suspects, mm-hmm. right? So it's used every day, this data, you know, not just by sort of scary intelligence agencies that we know so little about, like the NSA, but by local police departments as well. And so, it's be- yeah, the Internet has become much more useful as a surveillance tool and as a kind of a uh, management tool for society uh, as it's gotten privatized and as, be- as it's gotten commercialized and, and ubiquitous. Do you think we were, uh, as a country, sold a bill of goods by all the G-wizzery in the 90s, starting with Stuart Brand and going through Wired magazine about how this was ultimately a tool for uh, human liberation, that, n- n- unlike anything we've ever seen before, given where we are now? Of course, yeah. I mean, I, I think we all fell, we've been we're suckers, you know, for, <laughs> a, for, a, for a pretty transparent marketing ploy, you know? How can the Internet transform anything if the general st- other structures, you know, like Wall Street, right, are making money off of it, right? What, what, kind, of li- what kind of liberatory... Um, technology is it when you have just Wall Street going crazy, speculating on this on the stocks of this technology? You know, look, you know, for me it's interesting because one of the reasons I wrote this book is 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 because of my past in the Soviet Union. My family came to San Francisco in 1990. We had escaped this utopia that had failed. Mm-hmm. The country was collapsing behind us. We moved to America and. In, we were in San Francisco right as the dot com boom was beginning to heat up, mm-hmm. right as this technological revolution was heating up. And in America, as this immigrant kid, uh, you know, all I heard was that there is this new utopia that was being built, that this computer technology, that these these networks were going to bring into being um, everything that the Soviet Union could not. It was a very powerful story and a mythology, and 
everyone that I knew um, at the time, you know, a lot of people that I knew, not everyone, but three out of four people that I knew, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. uh, went into computers and became computer programmers and were part of this uh, thing. And they were young and making money. And, and it seemed like it was true. So for me, you know, the dot-com boom and the Internet dominated my um, American experience from almost the very first days that, that we arrived. Mm. And so the book, this book that I wrote is almost like a corrective you know, for, my, for myself but also for, for the world. Um, uh, yeah. Yasha Levine, thank you so much. It's a, it's a fascinating book. Uh, it's called Surveillance Valley. Is it out in paperback? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. Um, we'll get it's out in paperback in England. All right. Well, let's all go to England. <laughs> Once again, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apology of the week. Here's presidential, uh, now running for president, former vice president Joe Biden on The View this week. She was not 100% happy with your discussion with her. So here's your opportunity right now to just say you're, you apologize, you're sorry. I think we can clean this up right now. Well, by the way, I, I did. I understand. Uh, look, I'm not going to judge whether or not it was appropriate, but she had, whether she thought it was sufficient. But I said privately what I've said publicly. I am sorry she was treated the way she was treated. I wish we could have figured out a better way to get this thing done. I did everything in my power to do what I thought was within the rules to be able to stop things. But since I had publicly apologized for the way she was treated, I had publicly said it, I publicly had given for out credit for her, what, the, the contribution she made to change, begin to change this culture in a significant way, that... Um, what I didn't want to do, and, and I, I didn't want to, quote, invade her space. I didn't mm-hmm. want to get in the situation where this became. And then I went, when I heard all this about the, and it was legitimate, expecting a call why, every time mm-hmm. the phone rang. Why we, and so I, I, I spoke to some uh, leading women advocates in this area, who, someone knew her, and I said, could you see whether she'd take my call. Yeah. And I was grateful she took my call. You know, I think what she wants you to say is, I'm sorry for the way I treated you, not for the way you were treated. I think that would be closer. Well, but but, um, I'm sorry the way she got treated. In terms of, I never heard, say, if you go back and look what I said and didn't say, I, I, I don't think I treated her badly. I took on her opposition, what I couldn't figure out how to do, and we still haven't figured it out. Yeah. How do you stop people from asking inflammatory questions? How do you stop these character assassinations outside? There was a full-blown attack on her in order to try to get um, uh, the defense, quote-unquote, for uh, Clarence Thomas. And, uh, and I am, I, 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 no woman or any victim of harassment should ever be put through that circumstance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The apology of the week, such as it is, Joe Biden apologizing kind of to Anita Hill one more time on The View. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the godly. Well, New York is joining the group. You know, Pennsylvania, Texas, some other states in the United States have uh, publicized lists of Catholic clergy who've been 
supposedly credibly accused, living or dead, of um, sexual misconduct with young, young people, parishioners sometimes. The New York Archdiocese now, one of the largest in the United States. Why isn't it the largest? What the hell is wrong with you, New York? Anyway, it has um, identified 120 former Roman Catholic bishops, priests, and deacons accused of sexually abusing children. What do we tell the children? The Archdiocese was the latest to publicly list the names of former clergy members accused of abuse, according to Reuters, as the church faces state and federal investigations into its handling uh, uh, handling of de- decades of allegations of sexual misconduct by priests. I write to ask forgiveness again for the failings of those clergy and bishops who should have provided for the safety of our young people, but instead betrayed the trust placed in them by God and by the faithful. That's the statement from Archbishop Timothy Cardinal Dolan. He's an archbishop and a cardinal, and he's a Timothy and a Dolan. The archdiocese released the name of each accused clergy member the year he was ordained and whether he had been removed from the ministry. It also listed the year that he died, if he happened to do that. Yeah. list, though, did not contain information about the accusations that the clergy member faced. Because that would be, you know, an invasion of something. A review board has been created to help determine whether allegations of sexual abuse are credible and substantiated and whether accused clergy should be removed from the ministry as a result. Well, never too late for that. Let's look into that, shall we? News of the Godly. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of America's longest war. And this, we've waited a long time for this, I think. Uh, an area in which we can claim the lead in the war in Afghanistan. International forces, that is, is to say the United States and our uh, our NATO allies, NATO in Afghanistan, really, um, and their Afghan government allies were responsible last year, or sorry, the first three months of this year, responsible for more civilian deaths than the Taliban. That's according to a U.N. report this week. The first time in recent years civilian deaths attributed to government forces and their allies exceeded those blamed on their enemies. The statistics reflect what many say is a growing problem in the uh, war in Afghanistan, according to Courthouse News, in which civilians die not only in suicide bombings, insurgent attacks and so forth, but also in the crossfire as Afghan forces and U.S. forces and other NATO allies pursue militants. Nearly half the civilian deaths attributed to Afghan forces and their allies occurred during airstrikes. Some of the other civilians were killed during searches and raids of militant hideouts. More than 50% of the civilians killed were women and children, according to the U.N. The Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, this year urged his ground forces to take greater care to protect civilian lives while conducting search operations. And the Taliban, who control... If you didn't know this, nearly half the country have uh, asked their fighters to avoid civilian casualties in their attacks on government forces, which they conduct every day. You know, the Taliban is now conducting talks with the United States. They still refuse to talk with the Afghan government. But, hey, what are talks among friends? News, ladies and gentlemen, of America's Longest War. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. With thanks to Jason Isaac and Aaron Cohn here at WNYC in New York, Jeffrey Talbot at AudioWorks in New Orleans, Tommy Stang at Dungeon Beach Studios in Brooklyn, and Garrett Pittman at WWNO in New Orleans. And only Tommy Stang doesn't have double letters in his name. That is so weird. The program returns next week on the radio at the same time on these same stations and on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. Whenever you say, hey, Alexa, play the show. Hey, Alexa, play the show. I just said it. And it would be just like not having Alexa in your house if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? All right. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead for her help with today's broadcast. And thank you to um, the Tribeca Film Festival for the lovely um, tribute they held last night here in New York City to celebrate the 35th anniversary of This Is Spinal Tap. Still available on your video device of choice. The email address for this program, the playlist of the music heard here on when we play music, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts all at harryshare.com and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Share. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs>